All right. Well, I have a ton to cover today, so I just want to go ahead and get started so that we make sure that we have um, all of the uh, time that we need. How's everybody today? Good. I know it's so beautiful outside. I know it's hard to be here, but we're here, so let's make the most of it. Why don't we pray and ask the Lord to um, keep us attentive and receive all that he intends. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to really ponder the meaning of your church, of Mary, who is the first disciple, the first believer, um, and a model for us, and also the Mass, the highest form of prayer that you've given us to remember you, but also to receive you um, in your fullness. And so we thank you for all of those things, Lord. Um, And we ask that um, today that you enlighten our minds so that we can receive all that... um, that you intend so that we can encounter you more deeply in all these things that we're going to study today and come to a deeper um, walk and ultimately um, a more abundant life in you. And I ask this as I ask all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, the first, um, the first topic that we're going to kind of address today is the church. We're going to talk about the church. We're going to talk about Mary. And we're going to talk about the mass. Um, so it's kind of a mouthful. And so because you guys were baptized Catholic, um, you know, we're, we're just kind of hitting the high points here. But these are all really important dimensions. We used to not cover Mary at all, but I find that that's kind of one of the things that we often get challenged about in our faith. And so I think it's important for us to understand in the proper way um, our understanding of Mary and why she's so important to the Catholic um, faith and why, why we believe what we believe about her. Well, what about the church? What, how, when I say the church, you know, I know I wrote a lot of things on the, the PowerPoint handout that I've given you, but what do you think about when I, when I say the church? What's, what, are, what are some thoughts that come to mind for you? The church. What is the church? Who is the church to you? Family. Yeah. Family. Very good. Yeah, I think that's a great definition, right? The church. Who, who's included in that family? Father, mother, that's true. So we've got Mary, we've got God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who else? The children, children, right? So so all of us. But not just all of us on earth, right? All of those who have made it in heaven, those who are still working it out in purgatory. Um, And so we've got the communion of saints, if you will, um, that are included in, in the church. What else do you think about when you think about the church? The parishioners, absolutely. So, so all of us are included in that family of faith, absolutely. What else? Like home. Home, definitely. And and home is um is is a safe place, right? So a place that we can enter into, um, and have access to God's grace. Yeah. Um, Move it, move it away from that and kind of think about the more spiritual aspect. What is another name for the church? What do we call the church? God's house. God's house. What else? Place of worship or a place of prayer? Absolutely. Absolutely. Love. Yes, sure. Love. Why, why is it love? Because what does it kind of reflect? Your love for um, our Lord Jesus. What about his love for us, right? So kind of like the body of Christ. So the church, and that's kind of what I, was, I want to kind of get to, is that the church is, is not something that's outside of the Lord. It is the Lord, right? And so it's, not, it's the body of Christ. So we can never separate Jesus from his church. And I think sometimes that happens for us. We, we have maybe people who grew up Catholic and say, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not really a religious person. So although I believe, you know, in the Lord, I don't really have to go to church. Well, that's not really what Jesus did, right? He, he actually established a church, a visible entity that does have those spiritual qualities, but they can't be separated. Um, and so, so that's important um, to kind of keep in mind as well. So I, I think, you know, what's kind of hard for us to kind of think of is that the church really has been envisioned by the Father from the very beginning. Remember when I, when I, I kind of made a list of all the covenants, the way that God has really formed a people for himself? Um, well, this really is 
is the way. I mean, he has formed a people for himself, and the church is really that end formation, if you will. It's the place um, in which we're, we, we are called to become who we are. We're called to, called to become one body in Christ. And so it, we enter into, I, I talk about the church as Christ's body. We enter into the church so we become part of his body. This is an intimate union with, you know, the Lord of the universe. Um, and it's, it's in the church where we can experience that intimacy most definitively, most concretely. And so the Old Testament really provides for us um, this idea of those covenants, that forming of a people for, for God himself. Um, the world was really created for the sake of the church. The, the catechism says that. Um, why? Because we are created for God. He created each of us. He created the world so that we could be in union with him. He created us out of love. Um, and so, so really, um, the world was created for the sake of the church, who is Christ's body. So it's a very fancy way of saying we are created for God um, because the church is his body. What's the word ecclesia mean? <coughs> it actually means church. Um, ecclesia means church. And so that, that's the Greek word um, for, you know, God's people, um, a gathering of God's people. And that's really what the church is in addition to being the body of Christ. Um, and so the church is one of those ways that, that God institutes his new covenant. It's, it's a new covenant because it is Christ's body, um, and we participate in that. Um, Jesus himself established the church, and this is really important for us to, to recognize. This isn't some kind of abstract thing that we get out of reading sacred scripture. You know, Jesus established this church, and who did he establish it on? Anybody remember? Who did he say this to? Who did he say? Peter. You are Peter, Peter right? And, and on this rock, because Peter, Petra, means rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. My church, it's not Peter's church, it's Christ's church, but he establishes his church on the apostle, the first apostle, who is Peter. That's why we call Peter our first pope. Because if you look at all the listing of the apostles in the New Testament, Peter's always first. He's always included at the most important times of Christ's ministry, like the transfiguration, um, when, when they saw Jesus, you know, really transfigured before them. Um, he was there at the baptism of the Lord. He was there at all the great miracles of the Lord. And, and, and he's always listed first. And so Peter is, is really the first. And then, of course, Jesus says to Peter, um, Peter, I'm going to pray for you. He doesn't say to the apostles, I'm going to pray for all of you. I'm going to pray for the church. He says, I'm going to pray for you, that you're not sifted like wheat, you know, by, by the father of lies, who is the devil, that you can be faithful to my command to feed my sheep, tend my sheep. And so, so we believe that, that Christ himself established a visible church which provides for us an invisible reality, which is God's life through the sacraments, so that we can really be redeemed and then we can live out well our call to love. And so um, that's a lot um, to kind of hammer out. But, um, but Jesus himself um, established the church, so we're not a church without walls. Whenever I hear that on the radio, it's a really cute like, saying, but I'm always like, oh, it makes me so mad. <laughs> God established a church, you know, and um, so... Now, the thing that you probably haven't heard being um, kind of put out this way is, is, is that there are four marks of the one true church. There are four marks. And where do you see this? these four marks? One holy, catholic, and apostolic. Where do you see that? In the creed, right? We say this. And that creed was instituted when? In 325. You know, and so we're talking from the first time we could have a council this was, this was what the early church proclaimed, that the church is one, that the church is holy, that the church is apostolic, um, and that the church is Catholic. So I kind of want to just walk through each of these and kind of unpack which each, each of them mean. And it's very simple. There's not a lot about each of these things. The church is one because God is one, and it's his body. So there's only one God. There's not three gods. There's three persons, one God. 
only, only, God can only be one, right? Or else there would be gods, which would give us a small g and no one supreme. No, we have one God, uh, three persons who share in that divine nature. Um, and so the church is one because God is one. Um, and Jesus prays this prayer. He says, may they all be, may, be, may they be one in me. Not 30,000 denominations, but may they be one. Um, and I'm going to pray for that, you know, Jesus says. So, so the church is, is one. He establishes church, um, and it's, it's, it's one under a particular um, office, which is the office of Peter, the office of the pope. You know, we find in, in, in the pope really a great security, if you will, um, because we know that there is an authority that stands behind uh, the Pope, and that authority is, is the authority of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus himself said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. My church is going to lead the world into all truth. Why? Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we should take great security. So the Pope is really a sign of that unity that the church brings forth. It's a sign of a unity of belief. So when you say amen to Eucharist, when you say amen to the creed, you are saying, I believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches and believes as revealed by God. And so that's a pretty big amen. And so when, when somebody says amen to Eucharist in front of me, I, I'm confident that they have the same belief that I have about everything the church teaches and believes. Now, I'm not to judge whether or not they're living up to that, but they will be judged on that by God. Um, and so that's really important for all us to say. That's why, it's real, that's why we don't have open communion in the Catholic Church. Because when you say amen to Eucharist, you need to understand what you're saying amen to, that I believe everything the Catholic Church teaches and believes. That's what I'm saying amen to. And so for somebody who doesn't believe that the Pope was somebody that was instituted by Christ from the very beginning and has no, no really interest in what the Pope has to say or, um, or the teachings of our church, um, that's a problem. Not between me and this person, but between that God and that person. And so we need to understand what we're saying amen to when we say amen um, to Eucharist. And so we want to bring people into full communion. Open communion is, in a sense, and I probably said this last time, you know, people say to me, well, I don't understand, you know, why do I have to prepare for something I already believe in? And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do you know what you believe in until you're actually catechized? Every Catholic has to go for two years to class before they can receive the Eucharist. Now, they may only be seven years old, but they still have to go for two years of formation. Um, and so now, you know, if you want to become Catholic, it's about eight months, you know, formation. And you learn what you're saying, only superficially, but just like all of us, it's a beginning of our faith formation. So that's why the church is one, because God is one, and he made it that from the very beginning. There's only one church. St. Paul says, one church, one baptism, one faith. And that's the Catholic Church. It's holy. Why is it holy? It's holy because it's Christ's body. It's not holy because of you and I. Um, we actually you know, put some marks and stains on it, right? And so um, it's, it's holy because it's Christ's body and God is holy. Um, through the church, we receive the sacraments, which are his life. And so that's what makes the church holy. Now, the church is, is a house of, for sinners. But that doesn't make the church unholy. Um, and so its members can be falling short, and we do every day. Even some of our leaders um, do. But Judas was part of the 12. And he actually gave up Christ, right? Um, he betrayed him. And so there's always going to be members of the flock that are falling short, that don't live up to what they're supposed to do, and they will be judged. What we pray for, though, is that before judgment, um, they come to their senses. And so that's what we pray for. And so the church is one. It's holy because God is holy. It's Catholic. What does Catholic mean? Universal. Universal. And what is that? That doesn't mean, I, I had once had somebody say, well, it's universal, so, you know, we can all believe what we want to believe. I said, no, that's not what universal means. <laughs> it means that it's made for all. Like, the church is, is for all. You know, what did Jesus say, you know, at the, at the Great Commission? He said, go out, therefore, and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and so it's universal. It's made for all. God wills that all will be saved. Um, and not all will be, but he does will that all be saved. Remember the parable of the, of the separation of the goats and the sheep, right? Um, the goats don't have a good time, will not have a good time of it at Judgment Day, and I don't want to be part of the goats. I want to be in the sheep herd, you know? Um, and, and, you know, you need to read that parable. We'll talk about it when we talk about the moral life a little bit more, but it's a very powerful parable. So Catholic just means that it's made for everybody. Um, and it's offered, salvation is offered to all, um, and are they, in fact, responding to what they're being offered by their lives? And then the church is apostolic. Um, what do you think it means that the church is apostolic? <coughs> What's apostolic refer to? It's based on the apostles. On the apostles, right? So we had 12 apostles from the very beginning that Jesus himself chose. One fell away, so we had 11. Then we had what we would call the first discernment of the, of the last apostle, and that was um, when they actually chose Matthias. Um, to be the 12th, to, to take over for, for Judas. And so here we have, so we, we have um, being led by the Holy Spirit that this apostolic succession begins with the choosing of Matthias. These are mortal men. They're going to die, right? And so how is this church that is really called to save everyone um, going to carry on if there's not a successive kind of movement um, forward? And so from that moment on, there is what we call an apostolic succession. So it's, it's apostolic because it's, it's really founded on the apostles. Um, and that was Christ's choice. Um, and the Holy Spirit led them to choose Matthias. Um, and from that time on, um, we can trace back um, in all of our centuries of existence, all the way back um, to Peter. We know all the bishops. There's a list. You know, you can Google it um, and see the list of all of the popes um, that have existed. And so that's pretty powerful. So we say that the bishops that exist today actually can trace, if you turn around all of the laying on of hands, all the way back, back to um, Peter, which is pretty powerful. And that's why when, when, when um, churches have seceded from, from the Catholic Church, they no longer have that apostolic succession. And so what they are doing maybe something good, but it's not what Christ asked for. And so um, although we share in one baptism, if they're baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with water, um, then we share in that, um, everything else um, has been left behind. And that's kind of what, you know, it's not a triumphal, triumphantism, you know, of we're better than you kind of thing. That's not, that's not my point. We are the one true, true church. Um, why, why are we the one true church? Because we continue to pass on everything that Christ first gave to us. In the first secession from the Catholic Church, they left behind some of what Christ wanted to give. And so there's a lack of fullness as we move forward into the different Protestant denominations. The, the first Protestant denomination was what? In the 1600s that came, came about. That's 400 years ago. We've been here for 2,000. First thing they left behind was some of the Bible, right? Second thing were some of the sacraments. Third, so, so what we really are saying is a lot of what you have is true, but it's not everything that Jesus said and did. And so there's a great conference series that first really kind of resounded my, me in my own faith. It's called Fullness of Truth. And that's really what we believe the church has, the Catholic church has, everything that Christ said and did. So really important. So these are the four marks of the church. You can really ponder that more deeply as you say the creed um, every, every Sunday. Um, and hopefully that'll, um, that'll help you to go deeper in prayer. The church is, is visible, but it's also mystery, right? Because it's, it's like Christ is, both human and divine. So we have those spiritual dimensions of the church, which are Christ's gift to us, his sacraments. But it's also human because we are co-workers with Christ. Um, it is the universal sacrament of salvation. This is oftentimes um, misunderstood. We believe that it's only through the church that someone can be saved, only through, through Christ's body that people can be saved. But sometimes God works outside of those visible elements. And so God can do that, right? He's God. 
And so it's the universal sacrament of salvation. So if someone is saved, it's by the grace of Christ, but they may not do it the ordinary way. So they may respond to God's call to them as a Buddhist, <coughs> as a Muslim, as a Protestant. Um, you know, they, they haven't responded to the fullness of his grace, but maybe they were never presented with it well. And so, but the grace that they're saved by is the grace of Christ's body, which is the Catholic Church. And so we believe that everybody that's been baptized, and some Protestants may not care for this thought, that they're baptized into Christ's church. They're a member of the church. They're just not fully participating in it. And so that's why when Protestants come to the Catholic Church to become Catholic, we say you're entering into full communion. They're already in communion, but they're entering into full communion with the Catholic Church. Um, so it's both visible and it's spiritual. There is a hierarchy. Christ established a hierarchy. Um, there is Pope, who actually, all the popes, have, you know, the Pope is a bishop. Pope is a bishop, but he's the first among the bishops. And so um, the bishops share in the pope's authority. So each bishop really has ultimate authority over his own diocese. Okay? Um, and so the pope is, a, is one of the bishops. He's the first bishop. He's the bishop of Rome. We hear from the first century um, with um, writings by Ignatius of Antioch how the bishop of Rome is the primary bishop. This is where our Eastern um, Catholics have separated from us because they don't look at the Bishop of Rome as being the sole authority. Um, they see all of the bishops as having you know, equal authority. Um, it's a patriarchal kind of um, hierarchy for the Eastern Church. Now, they still have all of the sacraments. We still see all of their sacraments as being valid, um, but there's that papal kind of difference. So we're really hoping that that can be resolved and they can come back into full communion with us. That separation happened in um, 1065. Um, the, uh, that's a, a stumbling block for a lot of Protestants, too, to mm -hmm. have, uh, particularly in America, because mm -hmm. of the equality of their rights. Really, many have such a difficulty with the hierarchy. That's very and true, and it's interesting, though, because if you look at their, their own um, churches, um, they're actually operating on a hierarchy of their own input, right? So what happens at a Protestant church if the congregation doesn't like the preacher? Yeah. <laughs> they decide, we're going to fire you, or we're going to go to another church, right? So, so we, we either become our own pope, <laughs> or as pastor of that, that church, we determine what's said, what's taught. What's, so we become our own. You know, authority is just the way we live, right? All of us are under an authority, whether we're at school, whether we're at work, whether we're in a family. And so that's just kind of the way things work. You know, we might say it's not that way, but it, it's that way. It's got to be that way. Why? Or else there's no peace. And we can, we can really live in the security that God has given us a way to know what is true and good. Um, he hasn't left us orphans. The church is really a great gift. The hierarchy is a great gift. Um, and so the magisterium is the teaching authority of the church. And the magisterium is defined as the pope, the bishops in union with the pope. That's what the magisterium is, the teaching office of the church. And then priests, of course, and deacons are both co-workers um, with the bishop um, in getting you know, the work done of the church. And so, um, you know, priests operate alongside their bishop. They can't do things in a, in a diocese without the permission of the bishop. Um, the bishop has the fullness of priestly orders, which means he can ordain other priests. Um, the priests, that's the one thing that most priests can't do, as well as confirmation. Confirmation is supposed to be done by the bishop, which is why all you as Catholics, the cardinal wants to confirm you guys, particularly. And so normally, our parish priests, our pastors, don't confirm. But for those that are coming into the Catholic Church who are not baptized Catholic, then the parish pastor does confirm. Um, and he's given faculties by the bishop to do so. And sometimes I'll ask for special permission for, from the bishop if, the, if there's a good circumstance, like somebody's you know, leaving the country for going to war and they want to get confirmed before they go, Bishop Shelps, 
No, it gives me a, yes, of course, ma'am. Confirm, you know, have Father Wayne confirm them um, before they leave. So those kinds of things. Um, there's, there's, there's opportunities for us to do that. And the deacons, now see, the priests can do everything except for confirm, except on those occasions, occasions and ordain. The deacon is really for preaching. In the early church, you'll see in the Acts of the Apostles, um, the deacons were really meant to help take care of the widows and the orphans. And so deacons are meant to help preach and teach, baptize, and also assist in, in the sacrament of marriage. So a deacon can perform a sacrament of marriage, but not, a, not with the Eucharist or with a mass. Um, but they can help provide for that and also witness vows. Um, so if, if someone's, if a Catholic's marrying a Protestant and they get married at the Protestant church, a deacon will go and be a witness to that so that that, that marriage can in fact be valid in the Catholic church. Um, and so, so deacons, of course, can also be married. Um, now, if a person becomes a deacon and they're not married, once they're a deacon, they can't get married. If they're a deacon and they are married and they lose their wife, they can't get remarried. So... Now they're looking in the Amazon at possible married priesthood. Um, but what they're saying, and this is still up in the air, they're saying that you know, these folks don't have access to the Eucharist. And so can mature, virtuous, married men um, be ordained in order to be able to consecrate the Eucharist and provide the Eucharist to people that ordinarily wouldn't receive it for every two to three months because the traveling priests come by. We are so spoiled here. The masses we have here, daily masses we have here, and some people can only receive the Eucharist like once every couple of months. And so, um, so that's one of the things they're talking about is, um, you know, and that's what deacons are. Deacons are, for the most part, they're usually men that have been married, they've had family life, they've lived a virtuous life, and then they go to seminary when they're in their, like, their 40s or their 50s, and they, they enter into the diaconate. Now, every priest that becomes a priest is a transitional deacon. Alejandro will become ordained as a deacon in a year. Um, yeah. In a year. So seminarians, they go into the diaconate and they're transitional, which means they're going to be, they're, they're in waiting to become a priest. And so they're a deacon for a year and then they usually become ordained after that. I have a question. You mentioned cardinal. So is that yes. just a bishop or is that another word? Great question. So that's it's an it's more of an honorary term that is given um, to the bishops. So it's they don't do anything different. Um, except they usually have like a more a larger archdiocese, like they're over an archdiocese versus a bishop. And they also there's one function that they do that other bishops don't do. Does anybody know what it is? Guys the oh the Pope. They elect the Pope. That's right. They elect the Pope. So cardinals, um, so there's a certain amount of um, cardinals. Um, yeah. So the word cardinal means hinge. And it used to be the cardinals um, were the folks that um, other priests would come, come in and out and, and kind of report back to the Pope what was going on in all the um, dioceses. Um, but it doesn't really have that meaning anymore. But um, that always comes to mind when I we talk about cardinals, but thank you for asking that. So, yes? Is there a difference between a bishop and an archbishop, per se? Just a larger, like it's a more significant diocese, like we're a huge diocese, the archbishop, uh, the archdiocese of, because like Beaumont's a diocese. Okay. Galveston Houston is an archdiocese. Washington is an archdiocese. Washington, D.C. is an archdiocese. Um, and mostly because of its location and where it is. Um, Archdiocese of New York. Um, so yeah, it's mostly size and importance. Um, sometimes you can have a huge, like, you know, in terms of geography, but not many people. So okay. is it like due to location and population? Mostly di location and then, you know, there's also significance in the terms of like, um, like Washington DC in terms of government closeness, proximity. Okay. Um, there is a huge, huge Catholic community there as well. Um, so good questions. All right, all right. Any other questions about the church? I kind of, I just wanted to give you like a little overview. I, you know, my most important thing is, is just the four marks of the church and to really ponder those, but also kind of um, the sense that the church is not just some objective, visible reality that man instituted. 
that it was instituted by Christ. And it really is um, the universal sacrament of salvation. We said sacra sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality. The church is a visible sign of Christ's body. He has become human to redeem us from our sins, okay? Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about Mary. I usually give like a two-hour presentation on Mary, and so I'm going to, I'm really consolidating it down <coughs> to about a half hour. Um, but I do want you to understand that, you know, Mary is so critically important to us, not because of herself, but because of what she says about Christ. And so that's really kind of really important. Um, I think, you know, so many people, they start the conversation of why the Catholic Church is wrong about everything with the question about Mary. You know, why does Mary have such, you know, important role in the Catholic Church? You know, she's like a deity. You like worship Mary. No, we don't worship Mary. But Jesus, the angel of the Lord, said, blessed are you among women to Mary. So we didn't call her blessed among women. God did first, right? And so, um, so he chose her for a an incredibly important mission, which, by the way, all of us have. All of us are given a mission by God. Um, but Mary was given a really big mission, um, and she said yes. She brings us Christ. I had one time a person say to me, I, I actually reacted pretty violently because I was like, no, you're totally got it wrong. She said, you know, Mary was kind of like the first priest. She brought us the Eucharist. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but when I thought about it, she was absolutely right. She brought us the body of Christ. Um, in a very um, objective, concrete way, um, the manna from heaven. She was the ark of the new covenant, right? The body of Christ. And so um, she is the memory of the mystery of Christ, right? St. Luke says in his gospel, you know, that I've got witnesses from the beginning. I'm going to tell you the story that are coming to me from witnesses from the beginning. Who's a witness from the beginning? Mary, right, from the, the, the Annunciation, from when the announcement of the angel comes, the angel Gabriel, um, who comes. And so she is really the, the, the memory of the mystery of Christ, and she is both biologically and psychologically. Um, she brings together the Old and the New Testament. Remember in Genesis 3.15, I will place enmity, God says, between you, serpent, and the woman. Mary is the woman. So she brings together the Old and the New Testaments for us. Um, in Isaiah, we hear about how um, there's going to be a virgin that is going to, you know, bring forth um, the Messiah. And so Mary is that. Pope Benedict beautifully calls um, Mary daughter Zion, because Zion's another name for Israel. And so Mary is a daughter of Israel. She's a Jewish mother. She's, um, she came from this tradition that believed the, about the coming Messiah. And so Mary is um, daughter Zion. And she is actually who Luke's gospel really centers on. It's the story, the infancy narratives of Jesus. And Mary's the one that provides to St. Luke um, the real story, that she was a virgin, you know, that the angel announced this, um, that Joseph was going to quietly divorce her um, until an angel came to him. I mean, all of these, you know, all of this is like, it's a great mystery. Um, and so, um, so Jesus really provides an answer to us about who Mary is. There are five doctrines on Mary that the church gives us, um, and all of them we're called to believe. Um, none of them are optional. Um, there are two dogmas in which we have been proclaimed from the chair of St. Peter, the only two dogmas actually that have ever been proclaimed, um, and that is the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. But that doesn't mean that the doctrines aren't don't need to be assented to. All doctrines of the Catholic faith are needed to the assent of the faithful. But those two were dogmatically proclaimed. Normally things are dogmatically proclaimed when people have a lack of understanding about them um, and, and the church wants to clarify what its teaching is about those um, different things. So here's the five doctrines, Theotokos, the Immaculate Conception, the Perpetual Virginity of Mary, the Assumption, and Mary, Mother of the Order of Grace. All of them are found in your catechism. And there's a great article on the five doctrines of Mary in your um, folder behind the tab on uh, the creed. Um, so you'll enjoy that. The first doctrine basically is very simple. This is the one that kind of called me to a deeper walk in my own faith life. And I might have even told you this story because I tell it every time I talk about how I got into the, the faith a little bit more deeper. I was doing a Protestant Bible study and um, the, the woman that was my group leader said, oh, Mary, you know, you should, you should become a group leader. And I'm like, 
well, I'm not really sure. She goes, oh, well, by the way, you can't because you're Catholic. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? And she's like, well, you know, some different things. And she wouldn't really tell me. So I went to the leader who actually does these, these big talks every, every week and, and came down to finally, she said, well, you believe that Mary is part of the Trinity. <laughs> I said, I think that would make it a quadrinity, but I'm really bad at math, but I think that would make it a quadrinity. She didn't think that was funny. And I said, look, Mary's the mother of God. She said, no, Mary's the mother of Jesus. She said, wow, you don't believe Jesus is God? I am in the wrong place, you know? And so, of course, she was mad at me again because, of course, they believe that Mary. So, like, it's, you know, it's like, oh, my goodness. So we believe that Mary's the mother of God, not because of who Mary is, but because of who Jesus is. That he is God. And she is the mother of the person who is Christ. Christ is God, so Mary is the mother of God. It just follows a very simple trajectory. It's not complicated. The mother of God title refers to who Jesus is. Mary is not the mother of Jesus' divinity. We would never claim that. She's the only mother who was created by her son. It's a very beautiful thing to really ponder. And he made her perfectly. Um, as a result. Um, and so there's many um, scriptural referrals to this um, in, in that first line of St. Luke, um, not first line of St. Luke, but the first chapter of St. Luke, behold, the angel says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. So if it's the son of the most high and she's his mother, then she's the mother of the most high, right? Um, and so the truth about Christ reveals the truth about Mary. She is the mother of God. She's the mother of this person. This person is God. Mary is the mother of God. There was actually a council that had to be put together to really proclaim this. It's the Council of Ephesus. Um, which, why? Because there was a heresy that Jesus really wasn't, um, you know, Mary wasn't really the mother of God because, you know, how can Jesus be God if he's also human? And just didn't make sense. Um, and so that was a heresy that needed to be refuted. And it was, um, I think it was 481 at the Council of Ephesus. Again, some scriptural, scriptural reflection on why we believe Mary's the mother of the Lord. Well, as soon as Mary gets this message and the angel departs from her, the angel told her, your cousin, Elizabeth, she's, she's having a baby too. This is another miracle, right? Because Elizabeth's 90 and she's having a baby and she's in her sixth month. And so she says, the angel says, you know, all things are possible with God. Um, and so as soon as Mary gets that message, she goes off in haste to the hill country to find out if this is in fact true and to serve Elizabeth. The moment she enters into Elizabeth's house, what does Elizabeth say? Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's filled with the Holy Spirit, the scripture says. And the babe in her womb leapt for joy. And so she proclaims, to Mary, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? When the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Not when the voice of the Holy Spirit came to me, but when your voice, Mary, came to me. <coughs> You're the mother of my, of, the, of my Lord. And so again, Elizabeth was told this by the Holy Spirit. Not by Zechariah, not by the neighbor, but by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so here we have this idea that... that um, you know, Mary, again, is the mother of Elizabeth's Lord, who is also Mary's Lord, um, who is God. Um, again, I've talked about how Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. When this babe leapt in the womb of, of, Mary, of Elizabeth, I'm sorry, when St. John the Baptist, that's who the baby was in Elizabeth's belly, right? When that baby leapt um, in the womb of Elizabeth, it reminds Jewish readers of this, of the Ark of the Old Covenant. Why? Because David, who was the king, what was the Ark of the Old Covenant? What did the Ark of the Old Covenant contain? The, the Ark, the, the Ark, Ark of the Covenant was the way the people of Israel actually experienced the presence of God. So the Ark of the Old Covenant was the dwelling place of God. And if you look at um, the first... Um, I think it's in Genesis, I'm sure it's in Genesis, where the Ark of the Covenant is actually built, it's made of the most precious stone, the most perfect gold, pure gold. There is nothing that is imperfect about the Ark of the Covenant, and God gives the instructions as to how that Ark of the Covenant is going to be 
built. Why? Because he's, he's going to dwell there and walk with his people in the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant, three things are kept. The Ten Commandments, the manna from heaven, and Aaron's rod, who's the high priest. So when the Ark of the Covenant was lost for a time, it was lost in battle. They lost the dwelling place of God, right? It was taken over by an enemy. When the Ark of the Covenant was returned to the people of Israel, David was king. And he leapt before the Ark of the Covenant. He danced before the Ark of the Covenant. Translated, he leapt before the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because he was thrilled that God now was dwelling among his people again. The Ark has been returned to his people. Well, when Mary is before Elizabeth and the babe in her womb leapt for joy, it's a reflection back on how David danced before the Ark of the Old Covenant. Why? Because Elizabeth is before the Ark of the New Covenant, Mary's the Ark of the New Covenant, who is, who's not just, doesn't just contain manna from heaven, but the author that's going to give us bread, the bread of life, right? He's given, he is the bread of life. Um, not just Aaron's rod, but the true priest himself is present in Mary. And, and he's not just the person who gave us commandments written on stone. He is the lawgiver himself. And so these, this analogy, the way St. Luke writes this gospel, is immediately picked up by a Jewish audience who sees the, the, the parallels of the language being used and who Mary is and who Jesus really is. And so this, again, just points to um, Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant and as the Mother of God. <laughs> Book of the Revelation and the Ark of the Covenant, I just kind of reviewed that. So, so Mary's the Mother of God. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that's hard. That's just not hard to, to grasp. I had no understanding in theology, and I just responded right to the latest. But Jesus is God. Mary's his mother. I mean, what's the big deal here, you know? Um, she's a, she was a Jewish girl who was poor. She offered two pigeons for a sacrifice at the temple, right? I mean, um, she's claimed nothing. She said, my heart glorifies, magnifies the Lord. You know, he's, he's called upon his humble, you know, servant um, to serve him in this particular way. Um, so the Council of Ephesus, sorry, 431, not 481, um, declared this. Um, it's called a defender against all heresies Mary is. Um, why? Because she claims who Christ really is. So she defends against all heresies. Gnosticism was a big heresy in that time that kind of really thought the fact that, you know, um, the body is bad, so God could not have become human. And so body, spirit, so it kind of made Jesus spiritualized instead of becoming human. And so that's why we talk a little bit about that, okay? Um, all right, so Mother of God. Everybody good on Mother of God? We're okay with that? We understand why that is? Good with that? Okay. Immaculate Conception. Um, the Immaculate Conception says, and this is often misconstrued, most Catholics think the Immaculate Conception is that Jesus came to be in Mary's womb without any sin. It's not what the Immaculate Conception is. The Immaculate Conception is that Mary came to be in the womb of her mother without original sin. And the reason for that is because her nature was going to be assumed by the God of the universe, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And Christ could not have assumed a human nature that was tainted by original sin um, because he's God and he's perfect, right? And so we believe that at the moment, actually the moment before Mary's moment of conception in the womb of Anne, that she was redeemed. Does Mary need a redeemer? Yes. But she is redeemed first. She is redeemed before original sin ever touches her nature. So that she is providing then an untainted nature um, to the second person of the, of the Blessed Trinity. Um, and so, by a special grace of God, Mary had no original sin in her existence from, the con from conception to death. By the merits of Christ, she was preserved. Fulton Sheen does a great talk on this, and he basically talks about um, preservation um, versus restoration. Um, see, all of us in this room, 
we actually were born with original sin, and so we need to be restored. We need to be redeemed in a particular way. We're made clean by baptism. But as a result of having original sin touch our soul, even though we're redeemed from, from original sin, we still, we still limp a little bit because we still have the wound of original sin that was removed from us. But Mary was actually preserved. It's kind of like, um, you know, if, if we're walking along a street and um, there's an open manhole and somebody's standing nearby it, and actually knows that that manhole is open and prevents you from falling in, um, they actually preserve you from harm. Um, what happened to most of us is that we weren't preserved. We actually came to be with original sin, and so we were you know, restored. And so we were given back the original grace. Um, Mary never suffered from that, but she did need to be redeemed because that needed to be prevented from happening at the moment of her conception. Why? So Christ could assume her nature um, and be who he is, who is God. Now, a lot of people will say, you know, how can that be? Um, you know, all men have sinned. Well, actually, Adam and Eve were created without sin. And so, so it's, it's not like God didn't mean it to be that way. Um, and in Genesis 3.15, God claims victory over sin and death. He says, I will place enmity, total opposition, between you, serpent, and the woman. Enmity, complete enmity, means total opposition. The father of lies is full of sin. Mary is full of grace. And so he claims at the very beginning, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to create a woman, very much like the first woman, um, and she's going to respond in a way that, is going to be life-giving, unlike the first woman. And so Mary, that's why Mary's called the New Eve. Um, she's both mother and virgin, which is what Eve was supposed to be. Um, so I will place total enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Um, and Mary is full of grace. The only other place that fullness of grace is actually utilized in sacred scriptures when it refers to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Now, Christ's fullness of grace is due to his divinity. Mary's fullness of grace is a gift, pure gift. She did nothing to deserve it, but she was created with a particular mission which required her um, to be full of grace. <clears throat> This has been written about um, from the very beginning. Um, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr talk about Jesus as being the new Adam. So if there's a new Adam, doesn't there have to be a new Eve? And Mary is the new Eve. She unties the knot tied by, by Eve, um, and she recovers really that original motherhood that Eve was called to. She's the mother of the living. We're the new creation in Christ. Um, Eve was the mother of, of the first creation. Um, but she was unable to pass on what God first gave to them. Um, this is another gr really great thing that um, is, is hard to understand if you don't know the original language. Um, this fullness of grace um, actually has a meaning in the original um, Greek. This is the Greek word for it. Um, and it means that this fullness of grace that Mary experiences is something that didn't just happen when the angel came. There was, there was a sense of permanence about this word, fullness of grace. And so it's, it's not reflecting just that Mary received fullness of grace at the Annunciation, but that she had always had this fullness of grace. And so this term actually refers to Mary. This is Mary, you're the, you've been the favored one from the first instant of your... Um, of your creation. And so, um, so that's, that's really important. That was a real um, eye-opener for me when I first kind of started studying my faith, um, that this, is, this, this terminology doesn't mean merely at this moment, but it's a, a fullness of grace that ex existed. It's a, there's a sense of permanence to that fullness of grace that Luke refers to. Um, it's, it's what we call a perfect tense um, that is present. And so, um, Mary is the object of grace in a preeminent um, way. 
There's a good YouTube on um, the Immaculate Conception, so if you want to watch that later on, I gave you the the um, thing in your um, in your handout about that. Questions about the Immaculate Conception? I know oftentimes it's kind of a surprise about what the teaching of the Immaculate Conception is. Um, yes. When was the dogma So it was 1850. The dogma was declared. Um, again, it's, it was always kind of a teaching of the church, and this is actually a really good um, kind of validation of the, the teaching. So the dogma was proclaimed in 1850, and it really, um, um, it, it's not because there was a lot of poor teaching about it, it was just it was a dogma that was um, finally proclaimed, something the church really had always um, understood. Even Augustine said um, that Mary was younger than sin. Talked about Mary in that way, and that's third century, right? Um, but there's a wonderful um, uh, appearance by Mary um, that occurs um, that is at Lourdes, and you've all heard of Lourdes, right? The great miracle of Lourdes. And that involved a young shepherd girl by the name of Bernadette, again, very poor young woman, um, who received a vision of Our Lady. Um, and it was in a very poor, actually it was a garbage dump that Mary appeared um, to Bernadette. And um, Bernadette was with two of her um, friends. When this happened, they did not see the vision, but she said, saw the vision. And she just called the woman the lady. She didn't claim she was the Virgin Mary. She just called her the lady. And the lady asked her to come back and visit with her um, on several different occasions. And Bernadette did. Um, well, she began to kind of tell other people about this. Well, nobody believed her, not even her family. Um, and then finally, um, it got out to the church because Mary said to um, Bernadette, I want you to ask the bishop to build a church here. Here's this poor peasant girl that's going to go tell a bishop to build a church because a lady said so, right? Well, she does it, and she really gets into a lot of trouble. People don't believe her. Her parents don't believe her. The church doesn't believe her. Um, and then... Finally, the lady says, she says, she says, the bishop has asked me, what is your name? He's asked me to tell you, what is your name? And so the lady says to her, I am the Immaculate Conception. Bernadette, this, this was in 1852. Bernadette had no idea what the Immaculate Conception was. This was a new dogma of the faith that only the highest academicians are learning right in the seminaries. So she's like, the Immaculate Conception, the Immaculate Conception, the Immaculate Conception, the Immaculate She goes to the bishop, and she says, the lady says she's the Immaculate Conception. And the bishop's dentures fell out. She's like, who is this young girl that's telling me that this, is, this woman claimed to be the Immaculate Conception? Well, there's a beautiful church built there now. And then she told Bernadette to come back again. Well, the whole town followed. And she goes back, and Our Lady appears. And there's the miracle of the sun, right? It starts to pour rain down on all the crowds. They're soaping wet. They're drenched. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes the miracle of the sun. The sun gets bright. as Everyone dries up within like five seconds, and it looks like the sun is coming towards the earth, and the world's going to end. And then it ends. And everybody's just like, oh my gosh, did you see this? Did you see this? People like regained their sight at this time. People, I mean, there were miracles that happened all over the place. Then Our Lady said to Bernadette, go dig a spring over there. And Bernadette's like, there is no spring over there. She goes, go dig in the mud over there. She starts to dig. And all of a sudden, some water starts to come out. She says, drink the water from the spring. She goes to drink. Everybody's like, oh, she's eating mud. Because nobody can see Our Lady. Only Bernadette can see Our Lady. So she keeps digging. Eventually, a spring emerges, which is now Lourdes. I mean, it's a river. And the miraculous water from Lourdes has healed thousands of people. No medical explanation at all. If you go to Lourdes, which I did right after I finished my first graduate degree, to thank Our Lady for the... Um, transparency to the faith that she's given to me through my studies, um, there's, there's um, wheelchairs, crutches, thousands of them from the miracles 
that people that have gone into the baths have experienced. Um, sometimes it's physical healing, healing, it's always spiritual healing. Um, my whole family went into the waters. They're fr it's freezing cold. <laughs> if you've ever been into a water that has the springs, spring water, it's, it's freezing cold. But anyway, if you can ever see um, the movie, The Song of Bernadette, it's the story of, of, of St. Uh, Bernadette. Um, I, her body's incorrupt, and I knelt down by her body and prayed. She lived in a place called Nevers, N-E-V-E-R, in France. She became a nun. Um, she couldn't live, you know, with the people because everybody wanted her and touched touch her, and she saw saw her lady. She really lived in obscurity after that. Um, she was given the um, yeah. She, so she was given such a that I went on way too long about that, but it's such a good. It was a validation of the dogma that was being proclaimed, and so um, so yeah. So you can do a lot of study on the on the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. It's, it can be a tough one. I don't know why. I think it was just her grace, um, his grace, that made me understand it. As soon as I heard it, I thought, of course, that makes total sense. How could God take on our sinful human nature? Um, and yet he needed to come, become one with us in order to redeem us. And so, um, so what a perfect way that he chose um, to be one of us um, in all things except sin. Okay, perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, this is um, this says that Mary was a virgin at her birth, at the birth of Jesus. So she was a virgin when she she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Virgin during the birth of Christ, and she remained a virgin throughout the whole of her life. So we believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. Um, Mary is a witness that Jesus comes from the Father in a total way. You see, it's really believed that Mary, um, if, you read the, if you read the account of St. Luke's Gospel, in which Mary receives this message from the angel, if you, if you really read it in a way that it's meant to, Mary questions the angel. And the way the angel answers Mary <laughs> kind of tells us that Mary actually always thought she was consecrated to God in a very particular way that she was not really meant to be married and have children in, this, in the natural sense of things. She says to the angel, how can this be that I'm going to have a baby since I do not know man? Mary's engaged to be married. She should have thought, oh, so I'm going to conceive by Joseph, and we're going to have the Messiah. But no, she says, how can this be since I do not know man? And, and what theologians have said is that what Mary's really asking the angels, how can this be that I can be both virgin and mother? How can I be the mother of the Lord and still be consecrated entirely to, the, to God? Because that's what she meant to do, is give herself entirely to God. And the angel says, this is how it's going to be. This is how you're going to remain both virgin and become mother. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And what you're going to bear is the Son of the Most High. And so if you look at how the angel answers her, you know, he doesn't say, well, come on, Mary, you're engaged to be married. That's how you're going to have a baby. You know, no, he says, this is how you're going to become both mother and stay a virgin. Because Mary, Mary was all about um, an orientation to the father. And so um, and if you look at the way Zechariah was answered, when, remember I told you about that story about Zechariah, when the angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah, when he's offering <coughs> gifts at the Holy of Holies, he's, he's offering sacrifice, and you know, he's, a, he's a high priest, but his wife's never had a baby. This is John the Baptist's father. And uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah and says, you're gonna, have, you're gonna have a baby. Your prayers have been heard. You're gonna have a baby. And Zechariah says, what are you, crazy? My wife's 90 and I'm even older. Are you crazy? He says, because of your disbelief. See, he questions the angel, but he questions the angel in doubt. He doesn't believe. How can this be, he says. Mary asks a question to understand more deeply what the angel has just told her. Zechariah, I know we know that the angel didn't like what Zechariah said. She said, because of your disbelief, you're not going to be able to speak until these things come to pass. And he's rendered mute. For the pregnancy. 
until he proclaims what the angel said. This, this baby shall be named John. So, um, so virgin birth, well attested to, right? We, we hear it in, the, in Luke's gospel. We hear it um, in the Old Testament that, you know, the, the, um, the Messiah is going to be born of a, a woman, um, a virgin. Um, so this is very important. How is Mary virgin after she has a baby? I mean, that's impossible, right? How can that be? Well, this is really beautiful. Just as Jesus' conception was miraculous, so too was his birth. What was the consequences for original sin for the woman? Pain in childbirth. What causes pain? Fragmentation. Integrity is lost because of the birth of a child. Mary doesn't have original sin, so she doesn't have the consequences of original sin. And so the birth of Jesus was miraculous just as his conception was. The prophecy says the virgin will conceive and bear a child. So she's going to conceive the child as a virgin, and she's going to bear the child as a virgin. And so the birth of Jesus was also um, miraculous. So again, we have this parallel to Eve, who is supposed to be both virgin and mother, the consequences of sin in Genesis 3.16. Um, and then again, we have the Isaiah prophecies that really reflect this as well. Augustine says, you know, that he compared Christ's birth to his entrance in the upper room, where he entered through the door. He didn't open the door. And so his entrance into the upper room was just like his entrance into the world without any fragmentation whatsoever. What about the virgin, perpetual virginity of Mary after the birth of Christ? Um, it says in the Gospels that Jesus had brothers and sisters. So how could Mary not have other children? You guys know the answer to this? I know a couple of you probably know the answer to this. It goes back to language. So brothers and sisters, there's only one term for like relatives in the Greek. And that term actually refers to somebody that's my biological brother or sister, but it could also be my sister in Christ. It could also be my cousin. It could also be my aunt. And so the term brothers and sisters really included a variety of relationships among a community. And so what the church says is that brothers and sisters doesn't solve the problem in terms of saying that Mary had other children. In fact, if you look at the, if you actually look at the Gospels, you know, Mary, Jesus is only called the son of Mary. You know, there's, there's no other children that are mentioned of Mary in the Gospels. In fact, he is identified as her firstborn son, and then people say, oh, see, other sons came after. No, firstborn son really reflects kind of an inheritance kind of deal, not, not that there's going to be many to follow that this is the firstborn son of many. Look, women have died giving birth to their firstborn son. They have no more children after they're dead, right? So firstborn son really reflects an inheritance right, not that there were many others that, um, that came. These translation issues, Lot and Abram are identified in sacred scripture as brothers, but they're really an, a nephew and an uncle. So again, you know, looking at that more carefully is, is really important. Epiphanius really talked about a tradition um, with a small t in the church that Joseph was actually a widower, an older guy that married Mary. He was married previously, and that the brothers and sisters of Jesus are referring to his children from a previous marriage. The church doesn't claim that either is true. It just says it's possible that Mary had no other children, that she was a perpetual virgin. And that's what the church believes, that her whole consecration was really towards the Father. And then, of course, Christ on the cross, he gives her to John. If Jesus, if Jesus had other brothers or sisters, he wouldn't give them to John. That would have been like a travesty in ancient Judaism to give your mother to really somebody that doesn't belong to the family. If you have brothers and sisters, you're going to give them to your brother. Um, and so, um, so all these things kind of piece together for us our understanding of Mary's um, virginity. The assumption of Mary, um, 
This is when Mary was assumed body and soul um, up to heaven. We believe that really because Mary had no sin. The wages of sin are death, and so it flows from her immaculate conception. I think the biggest um, thing that really kind of tells us about Mary's um, assumption is that there was never a body. There is no church built upon the body of Mary. And in the Catholic tradition, that's almost a mortal sin, right? If there was a body, there would be a church built on it. Because um, that's what we do, you know? We, we honor people that have lived life, well the life of Christ. And so there's never been a body. Um, she had unparalleled fullness of grace um, and her association with Christ um, as the new Eve and her integral virginity. So all of these things are really fitting um, to the mother of God. Mary was assumed, we believe, body and soul. She and Jesus Christ are the only two in heaven with a body until the end of time when we, there's a resurrection of our body. Um, the assumption of Mary. That's the other dogma of the church. That was proclaimed in the 1950s. Right after World War II, um, people were demanding that this be proclaimed. Why? To give us hope about the resurrection of our bodies. That we are, we are made for God. And Mary's assumption into heaven really shows that. The last um, doctrine on Mary is Mary as our mother in the order of grace. Mary is not our mother in the order of biology. You wouldn't call her mom in the sense that we came from her very nature. Um, but she is our mother in the order of grace. So Christ becomes our, our brother, um, right, because he is the son of God he, and he dies for us. Um, he becomes our brother, um, marries his mother, and so marries our mother as well. And so um, Mary is um, the mother of God and we are... Um, we are brothers and sisters of Christ, and so she is our mother. Um, we see this in Mary's motherhood. She watches over and protects the human race through her powerful intercession. We see at the wedding feast um, of Cana, she intercedes on behalf of the couple um, for you know, getting what they need, the good wine. Um, she prays for us. She leads us back to, this, to Christ. And her words are always the same. She always, she always says, just like she did at the wedding feast of Cana, do whatever he tells you. It's not about do whatever I tell you. That's not Mary's role. Her role is one of intercessor, leading us more closely um, to her son, who is Jesus. And there is nobody better person than a good Jewish mother um, to do that for us. Um, all right. This is probably important just to say. You know, Mary mediates on our behalf, um, and, and this is important. You know, it says that um, it's only through Christ that we are saved, and yet, um, you know, we're, we're called to be his co-workers, and so all of us mediate on behalf of another. You are all here because your parents introduced you to the faith, a friend introduced you to the faith, you married somebody who was a strong Catholic, we, we all mediate on behalf of, we all intercede on behalf of one another. But we can only do that when we're first in Christ. And so no one mediates as Christ did. Of course, he is, he is the one between us and the Father. Um, we participate in his mediation, so we are co-workers. Um, and it's only in his mediation that our mediation is, is possible. And that's, Mary is our, is such a wonderful mediator. Do you have to take advantage of Mary's mediation? No, but I wouldn't live without it. I don't know why you would do yourself that disservice. Um, you know, I, I often say to my marriage prep couples, you know, try telling your future um, spouse, your fiance, I really don't want to know who your mother is. If you love Christ, you want to know his mother um, because that's a very intimate part of, of his life. Capiche? Okay, good. All right. The last thing I want to share with you is um, 